welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 91. Uh, very glad to get positive responses from people. Those emails are really gratifying, I have to tell you, uh, especially when people tell me that, uh, you know, listening to the show, to this show, to, to any of the other work that I've, that I've put out, that it's inspiring, that it's helping them uh, evolve in their politics, getting involved in grassroots uh, political work. Uh, that's, that's the kind of stuff that really keeps me going. And I just want to thank people who do reach out and who do offer positive words either about the show or about Counterpunch um, because I think that that's really important. Um, you know, it's the era of quote-unquote fake news. Everything is fake news. Everything is everything is uh, colored through some ridiculous caricature-like lens. And uh, I think that at this point, we can pretty much say that the vast majority of the media is, uh, well, for lack of a better word, not worth paying attention to. And then there's publication like Counterpunch, which really, I think, cuts through a lot of the bullshit. It really gets to the core issues. It strips away a lot of the fluff. It strips away so much of that, uh, you know, just, just that noise that surrounds most media. That's not only corporate media, but also a lot of alternative media, it must be said. And uh, so I think Counterpunch really stands apart in that way. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be involved with uh, Counterpunch as a project and be doing this show. If you agree with what I'm saying about Counterpunch, a great way to show your support is a subscription to the print magazine. Uh, it, it Not only is it not a huge moneymaker for Counterpunch, it's extremely laborious and extremely time-consuming, but also, in my view, extremely worthwhile. Uh, I think print publications have a certain magic to them, uh, and I'm very glad that Counterpunch still puts one out there. So anyway, if you want to get something back from your giving to Counterpunch, that's a good way to do it. Or, if you'd prefer, just donate through the PayPal button on the website, uh, Give put in a call to uh, to, to Becky, uh, you know, tweet at Josh or at Jeff or attack people on Facebook. You know, whatever gets the word out is always appreciated. Uh, so anyway, with that, I do want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very excited to have him on the show. Somebody I've been meaning to have for quite a while, um, Anthony DiMaggio. Uh, Anthony is a professor of political science at Lehigh University. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch as well as a number of other um, outlets, uh, both online and in print. Um, one book that I want to highlight of his work that I think is of note and, and certainly relevant to listeners here, uh, his book, Selling War, Selling Hope, Presidential Rhetoric, the News Media, and U.S. Foreign Policy Since 9-11. I think it's an indispensable book and one that uh, I think really informs a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about today. So with that, Anthony DiMaggio, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Uh, I'm a I'm a great follower of your work, and I I really do appreciate a lot of the analysis that you've put out, especially uh, in in recent months. I know you've done a lot of work, um, you know, examining the Trump phenomenon, examining some of the uh, issues surrounding not only the rise of Trump but some of the contemporary issues that are emerging, including uh, some of these uh, scandals. And God bless you if you can pay attention to every scandal each and every day. It's uh, it's difficult to keep track. But uh, as we're speaking here. Today on July 10th, we have yet another scandal breaking within the Trump administration, and that's really where I want to begin. So, uh, and we'll kind of go from there. I, I have no doubt the conversation will go in many different directions from here. But let's start with the news of the day. Uh, 
Donald Trump's children under the microscope and specifically uh, Donald Trump's son in relation to meetings, secret meetings with Russian representatives or representatives of the Russian government. That's the story from the New York Times. Give us the background, uh, you know, a quick summary, Anthony, and what's your read on this? Is this a significant development? Is this something that we really should be paying attention to beyond just the seemingly daily conspiracies coming out of the Trump White House? Uh, I think it's potentially important. I mean, uh, there's a couple of different sort of elements to this, and I'm not sure that, you know, in terms of its real significance, I trust a lot of the mass media to really sort of latch onto it, because on the one hand, you've got sort of the standard, you know, democratic narrative, which is that, you know, uh, the Russians stole the election, and that, you know, if it wasn't for them, Hillary Clinton would have won. And there's nothing wrong with Hillary Clinton and the modern Democratic Party. They just got, you know, robbed by, by the Russians. And, you know, there's really been very little evidence to show that um, if the Russians were involved in trying to uh, hack the election, uh, that it actually had an impact on voting. But I think it's interesting when you look in the context of this story, because you've got this woman, a Russian lawyer, who I'm not sure really anybody knew who this woman was until. She's on the front page of the New York Times today. Um, Natalia Vesel Nitskaya. And uh, sort of one of these weird rabbit hole stories where you keep going down this hole and you see, well, who is this woman? She's got um, ties to Russian state-owned industries. They're her clients. She sat down with a meeting with uh, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, with Donald Trump Jr., with Jared Kushner. Supposedly, according to the report, they were looking for some dirt on Hillary Clinton. And then it starts to raise questions about what, what's the quid pro quo here, potentially, if, well, if they get information that they could use against Hillary Clinton, does that mean that there would be a lifting of, of sanctions or getting rid of sanctions on Russia? And so, you know, this very quickly starts to go in some bizarre directions. Um, I think that some of this is pretty questionable when you look at the sort of the standard mainstream media narrative, which is that we know that Russia the Russian government and Vladimir Putin stole our election. Um, and if, no, if nothing else, I mean, from the limited data that's actually been presented, you've got evidence that um, the WikiLeaks stories that made Hillary Clinton supposedly look so bad from the Podesta emails, uh, did they even have an effect on voters? I don't think anybody's ever bothered to even present any evidence of that. A lot of these stories were very inside baseball kind of things, like Hillary Clinton does speeches for Wall Street and um, Hillary Clinton has bad political instincts. And if you actually look closely at um, when these WikiLeaks stories were being covered by the news, and it was this October 2016, and when people were Googling, looking for these WikiLeaks stories, support for Clinton was actually going up during early to mid that month. And I, the reason why I bring all this context up is because you've got this sort of mainstream narrative that you know Russia stole this election, but we really haven't seen real tangible evidence of that. I think that there's a broader significance to this, and it has to do with this this pattern within the, the Trump administration where they deal with foreign leaders across the board with this sort of clientelistic, uh, tit-for-tat, sort of horse trading of benefits for policy outcomes. And I'd be happy to talk about that in some more detail if you're interested, but it, it, it's a pretty... It's a pretty controversial thing, I think. Well, let's let's explore that a little bit more deeply because you know my my initial reaction to you saying that is, 
Well, yeah, of course. So what? Everyone knew that that's what Trump was going to do. Nobody had any illusions that a used car salesman con man coming into the White House was going to interact with world leaders and interact with states and, you know, in a sort of a cloak and dagger kind of not really above board sort of way. So my question is, and I'm, you know, I'm not really uh, making the case one way or another, but my question is, is that even a story that Trump would un- use, you know, sort of unethical practices in dealing with foreign leaders? Well, uh, in one sense, I think, you know, there's definitely space to, to question that and say, how big of a story is it? Because we have a whole political system that's driven by money and sleaziness and um, campaign outcomes, which are pretty much broadened by the person who spends more money, you know, approximately 90 percent of the time, people who spend a uh, candidate who spends more money wins their election, their respective race for Congress or, you know, the House or Senate. So in that sense, you know, this idea of money in politics and trading of money for election outcomes and just money in general in politics is really nothing new about that. What I would say is that what makes the Trump administration interesting is they've sort of taken it to a whole other level. Um, political leaders like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, they at least knew to avoid the appearance of malfeasance in terms of things like giving Wall Street speeches while they're in office, they would at least have enough sense to wait until they're out of office. Um, and in case of Trump, he really strikes me more of a sort of Rod Blagojevich type political figure in that tragic sense. Um, I don't know, for people who aren't familiar with Rod Blagojevich and the governor before him, George Ryan in Illinois, there was this really blatant sort of horse trading that, that would go on that was even more extreme than any sort of typical buying of elections. Um, you know, in the case of Rod Blagojevich selling a Senate seat, uh, holding up money for children's hospitals and demanding campaign contributions, threatening um, to hold up money for uh, businessmen like Sam Zell who wanted state funds for rehabilitating Wrigley Field because Sam Zell had owned the Cubs at that point. Unless, of course, uh, the Chicago Tribune fired its editorial board, which had called for Rod Blagojevich's impeachment, uh, and Sam Zell owning the Tribune, obviously, the, the attempt there was to put pressure on him. And this kind of shameless sort of um, clientelistic politics, is, I would say, is a step above what we've seen with modern corruption. It sort of takes you back to the old machine politics days of the late 1800s, early 1900s, where uh, people who were part of these political machines in urban cities, you know, you really had a difficult time, especially immigrants, securing things like jobs or food uh, or protection, police protection, unless you had been sort of juiced into the political machines and you guaranteed to vote for the candidates that the machine boss favored. So the reason why I'm bringing up this older sort of historical reference is because, you know, that level of corruption where you basically have to pay to play for basic services and jobs uh, is something that we had largely gotten rid of in American politics for really 100 years, and we're starting to see that coming back with Donald Trump. So, you know, while this corruption has been around for a long time, this is, I guess I would say it's a question of degree. Indeed, and I, I don't disagree, but I think another way of looking at that would be that on the one hand, yes, it's a question of degree. On the other hand, it's really just a question of appearance. I mean, really, the, the what we're what we're getting at is that uh, people like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or whomever that they're that they're able to uh, present more of an appearance of uh, professionalism, an appearance of ethical behavior, an appearance of uh, sort of sticking to the, the the norms and protocols of diplomacy and so forth. But I mean, obviously, when you dig down and you look at a lot of the things that came 
out, for example, about Hillary Clinton and sort of the pay for play with the Clinton Foundation, the pay for play with Saudi arms deals and a whole bunch of other things that came out. You see that this is something that that in many ways could be seen to be endemic now. On the other hand, of course, I'm not suggesting that there's nothing to the story about Donald Trump or that we shouldn't be talking about it. To me, it's a very big story because it illustrates, I think, a larger question, and that is how much is the U.S. government beholden to Moscow? That's the real question here. How much is the White House beholden to Moscow? If they're having secret meetings in the run-up to the election and there's some sort of a buying and a selling, a giving and a taking, well, my question is, what's going to be the giving and what's going to be the taking? Well, it seems like most of these um, news reports that are talking about uh, Russia in particular and, uh, and Putin have to do with this idea of easing sanctions that... Uh, this is what, what Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor, although for a very short period being an advisor, what he was talking about when he met with the Russian ambassador. Um, and this is sort of what um, came up during this meeting with Manafort and, and Kushner and Trump. Um, so I guess that would be, uh, to use a really bad pun, like the, the one Trump card or you know, chip that they would have, this idea that they want to ease sanctions. Um, I guess that would be sort of a really the big thing that they're focusing on that that seems to be it i think um what i'm getting you know, at I, i'm sorry i just want to i just want to uh, reiterate my point what i'm getting at is not only this specific case it is the larger question about leverage and what leverage the russians may or may not have over trump because on the one hand i certainly reject the russia did it narrative that russia is behind everything russia created trump and that's nonsense of course but there is obviously uh some 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 fire here where there's so much smoke and the, I think the, the the key question is to find out exactly what that fire is because right now as you said at the opening of our conversation Anthony there's so little in the way of verifiable facts but so much in the way of anecdotal information I think so I, I'd agree with that I mean it's hard to sort of know at the end of this where exactly this is going in terms of the very good question you posed because I'll be honest with you you know until this morning this idea that the Trump administration had some sort of direct contact with, um, with uh, even in this case, a lawyer close to the uh, the Russian government and close to these Russian state industries. This idea that there was some sort of missing link, that there was something going on where the Trump administration had an actual verifiable link where they were connected to the Russian government in some way and trying to impact the election outcome. I wasn't sure that that even existed as a story. That uh, and then you know you see this story in the New York Times today. So seems like, um, you know, this is like some weird sort of melodrama playing out every day in the pages of the New York Times. You never really know what you're going to see moving forward. Uh, for what it's worth, and I don't know how much it's worth because a lot of this is still so unknown, uh, my impression is that uh, the Trump administration, when you talk about this president, uh, that it's not just a, a Russia thing to be concerned with. It's a, just a general foreign policy tit-for-tat horse, tit horse trading. I mean, you've got not just this case of talking about easing sanctions, uh, in exchange for Mike Flynn getting uh, fees from, from RT or in the case of uh, lifting sanctions, which is what Mike Flynn was talking about. You've got these other cases where, you know, you, you had alluded to this too. I mean, you know, under the Trump administration, under the Obama administration, you've got arms deals with Saudi Arabia, $110 billion, where there are these side benefits for uh, Trump's own family and allies in terms of his daughter getting 
basically $100 million uh, for her Women's Entrepreneurs Fund and his friend uh, from the Blackstone Group, CEO Steve Schwartzman, getting a guaranteed $20 billion for, quote, infrastructure projects just handed over. Um, this sort of idea that Washington's open for business to anybody, any of the highest bidders, this is something uh, that you see in the case of the Saudi arms deal. It seems to be present here in the case of Russia. Uh, you'd see it in the case of China, too. Uh, you have a president in China, Xi Jinping, who uh, basically sits down with Ivanka and uh, Jared Kushner. And prior to the sit-down, this dinner, you've got uh, all this bluster coming from the Trump administration about people like Steve Bannon particularly uh, and Rex Tillerson that, well, we're going to declare a blockade of China in the South China Sea. Uh, we're going to go to war with, with China. It's coming. That was a Steve Bannon quote that was reported in The Guardian. And then you go to the exact opposite of extreme of, well, now we're sitting down for dinner. Um, Trump's really cooling it with a lot of this sort of militaristic rhetoric. He's recognizing the idea of a one-China policy. And then all of a sudden, Ivanka Trump gets uh, a deal for monopoly trade rights to sell jewelry and handbags and other items in China. So this idea that there's some sort of fire sale going on in Washington, and I think it might be that simple for this administration, that they're going to trade anything that they can for anything that they perceive. It's, it's going to be a short-term financial benefit. And you know, in the case of Russia, in the case of China or Saudi Arabia, that's really happening across the board. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. Now, the question that I have is, um, how do we how do we approach this issue? I mean, obviously, the, the news story about, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump's son and, and, and Manafort and Kushner meeting with, uh, you know, someone tied to the Russian government. Obviously, this is a story that, that I think does require a little bit of analysis and examination. At the same time, uh, what I'm concerned about is in falling into the trap of justifying, legitimizing, and buttressing a completely bankrupt narrative that the Democratic Party and the media outlets that are beholden to it and to the liberal establishment have been putting forward for months and months now. I mean, this is essentially the idea that the Russians, in collusion with Julian Assange and maybe a handful of other, you know, mavericks or whatever you want to say, that they torpedoed the real presidential candidate, they, they torpedoed the Democratic Party, and that they should be destroyed for that, and the Democratic Party should be, you know, resurrected as the savior from the, the, the tyrant Trump. This is, of course, complete and utter horseshit, and uh, utterly bankrupt and totally debunked. So, how do we talk about the issues of Trump and Russia without legitimizing the Democratic Party narrative, without legitimizing the Hillary Clinton narrative? Well, first I would say I think that's a great point that you're making in the sense that there's this danger of legitimization because, you know, I was just at um, a protest in, uh, in Allentown, where I, other than Pennsylvania, where uh, you're starting to see for the first time, at least from what I've seen, uh, a lot of the protests of Trump are going beyond simply being anti-Trump in a sort of knee-jerk democratic sense, where people are starting to spotlight this idea of uh, tax cuts for the wealthy in exchange for repealing health care, uh, the Affordable Care Act, this idea that government itself is not in favor of the people, it's in favor of the wealthy, that we need universal health care. So this is a real challenge that we face right now because what we don't want to do is give ammunition for uh, the neoliberal Democratic Party to sort of wish away their failings, right, I mean, which has been monumental. Uh, so I think, um, you know, the way to do this, as far as I can tell, the best that I've seen is I would say one way to sort of deal with this is to try to, to the extent that it's possible, to re 
to sort of downplay uh, the the Russian aspect to this and focus more on a good government, good government and good governance sort of issue here. You've got a clause in the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, which says that a president will not make profits off of foreign leaders, and that to me seems to be a much bigger issue than in any one country. You're talking about the idea of transparency in government and not engaging in a sort of horse trading of of policy outcomes for personal financial profits. And the Trump administration has really, been, you know, Trump himself has been a complete black hole when it comes to accounting for any of these finances. And what really needs to happen, I think, is there needs to be an accounting of uh, his personal finances and whether he is making money off of foreign leaders. And then, you know, I think from that point forward, you can have plenty of news stories that will emerge about uh, whether this is happening with regards to Saudi Arabia or China or Russia or wherever. Uh, and then it sort of becomes, a, I think, a different issue, or at least the framing is different than just this Russia fear-mongering stuff, which, to be perfectly honest, I mean, even as somebody on the left, I think that, you know, a lot of people would probably agree that there are some real positives to come out of a cooling of relations between the U.S. and Russia, particularly when we're talking about the specter of nuclear war. Yeah, I, I mean, when um, when you think about all of the things that have happened, when you think about every every story that has emerged, everything is kind of framed as Donald Trump as a puppet of the Russians. Donald Trump is essentially a sleeper agent for the Kremlin. Donald Trump is, and I mean, you can fill in the blank, any number of, uh, you know, fantasies and stories that have been spun by the Rachel Maddows of the world and, you know, uh, uh, many others and various other media outlets. But I... You know, while I agree with what you're saying, Anthony, uh, one of the complications for me, at least, is how do we actually put the pressure on Trump on those issues? Because I think they're all very relevant issues. But I find that so much of the quote unquote resistance to Trump and particularly organizing uh, uh, not just resistance in terms of protest, but organizing things like judicial challenges, organizing things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, attacking Trumpism from an intellectual perspective. These type of things are often sort of filtered through the lens of NGOs, nonprofit organizations, the various other, you know, uh, uh, you know, let's call them uh, appendages of the liberal establishment. And that's one of the dangers I see in approaching this from that perspective is that whether it's the news media or whether it's, you know, mainstream academia or anything in between, you find so many people who shill for Hillary while attacking Trump, who shill for Democrats and attack Trump. And can is there a way to separate these things? Is there a way to actually approach this issue from, if not let's if not let's not call it a revolutionary perspective, but from a truly progressive uh, leftist perspective? I think there is, but it requires the construction of an independent political, social, and intellectual power that we don't really have on the left right now. Well, I would agree with that completely. I think. Um... The real challenge here is coming up with more nuanced, not propagandistic frameworks through which to analyze this stuff. And the problem with a lot of the mainstream, I don't really even like to say mainstream media, I'll say mass media or corporate media, uh, the problem with a lot of it is that you've got these sort of standard lines that get pushed by political leadership, in this case the Democratic Party, and we know what they're doing here. They're obscuring sort of a more nuanced 
credible analysis of this. So what the issue that really comes up is that you know, how many opportunities really are there within that mass media to, to challenge these narratives and these developments? If you're really challenging the status quo, that takes a lot of time and intellectual effort, and it actually requires a lot of space, too, in terms of writing, because uh, it always requires more time and effort to challenge established truths than to, to parrot them. So I, I think we really are talking about here is trying to build not only um, progressive social movements with our own narratives, but we're going to have to build, um, even, to an even larger extent than we have now, uh, alternative left media. We're going to have to really expand their reach if we really want to have any chance of, of trying to impact the, the national discourse on this issue and others. Well, that's right. And on the on the flip side of that, there is a concerted uh, media campaign from other quarters, obviously Russians using their Russian media platforms to do exactly the opposite, right? To try to uh, downplay and to, uh, you know, discredit and to debunk all of these stories to kind of remove them from any real political context and certainly to rob them of any political significance, which I think uh, if people are falling for that, that is a tremendous mistake. I think there's a lot to be learned about many different aspects of what's happened in the last uh, 12 months if you look closely at Trump's connections with Russia. But I'm, I don't mean all of these, you know, sort of back alley, shadowy connections. I also mean a lot of the ideological connections, a lot of the sort of discursive uh, overlap where you talk about things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a nativist politics. You talk about ultra conservative uh, uh, politics, uh, whether it's wrapped up in the Orthodox Church as it is in Russia, or whether it's wrapped up in a sort of a white identity politics as it is with Trump and the evangelical set that he's managed to hoodwink uh, along with him. I think that there are a number of uh, layers through which we can kind of examine these connections, and they're not all conspiracy based. And if we don't do that, then we fall into the trap set for us by RT and Sputnik and the rest of them of simply ignoring all of this, and we do so at our own peril. I think that makes sense. I mean, I have never personally contributed to, to RT. I've had them contact me before. I, I'm not going to tell people that I know progressives that if they don't want to watch um, you know, foreign news sources that they shouldn't, but I mean, I think one of the reasons why these alternative sources have been growing is because there has been a vacuum in the United States in terms of people's access to dissonant views, and they, they see a lot of these views that are critical of the United States. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of uh, progressives, uh, I think it could be quite seductive because you're talking about people who have important things to say, but they've really been blacklisted from the American mass media. And these are outlets that, uh, like RT, that uh, might actually have resources. They might actually pay people for being on these programs, and I don't think anybody's against making a living on some level. Um, and they've got big viewerships, you know, from, from what I've seen from, from outlets like RT, you might be talking about a few hundred thousand uh, daily viewers in the United Kingdom alone, maybe tens of millions. I've seen some numbers as much as 35 million globally on a daily basis. And, you know, you compare that to outlets like uh, Salon in the United States, which is maybe, you know, 300,000 people a day or, or even Counterpunch, as great of a, a site as it is, we're talking about 30 to 40,000 readers, which is very significant. But but, you know, there is a, a sort of vacuum here in terms of uh, really a mass access to, to progressive views. And that's one of, I think, the big challenges that myself and others are facing moving forward, that uh, if you want sort of alternative views to become, to get access to the, to the masses, we have to really sort of work to build these 
alternative movements. And you did mention this idea of what's driving Trump's support, that this is not just about, you know, these shadowy discussions about Russia and these electoral um, uh, politicking. But there's other things going on here, too. You know, there's a lot of things we could be talking about as well with regards to Trump in terms of what's driving his support. And I think that's one thing that's been really sort of misunderstood among a lot of Americans and even on the left. Totally misunderstood. Absolutely. I think that you're 100 percent right. And I just want to finish the point on uh, on 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 Russian media only because I brought it up. Uh, My experience having been on RT and Sputnik and Russian media, I mean, at least at least 100 to 200 times over the course of a number of years. Uh, I think I have a pretty good idea of what their MO is and how they're operating. And in this case, their function is to essentially run interference for the Kremlin political line. And the Kremlin's political line is that they had nothing to do with anything that happened in the United States. They didn't try to influence uh, either in terms of the election itself or in terms of public opinion, etc., 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 all the things that Putin said in the interview with Megyn Kelly and all of, and, and the other interviews that he's done. Now, leaving all of that aside, though, I think a critical perspective on this would have to, at the very least, recognize just what kind of ideological perspective RT and Russian media and others as well, but particularly they, were pushing over the last two years, a, a one that is very uh, friendly to the far right, one that casts in a positive light every far-right movement throughout Europe, every far-right movement that is in any way friendly to uh, Russia and to Putin is to be glorified, including Trump. So we see whether Brexit or Trump or Marine Le Pen or the Jabbik party in Hungary or the attack party in Bulgaria or the Sweden Democrats or any number of fascist or proto-fascist or neo-fascist political parties that are to varying degrees connected in some ways back to uh, either direct support for or direct support from Russia. So these are things that I think the left ignores to its peril. Now, obviously, the entire left is not ignoring it, but so much of it is. And I think it's because it's caught up in media access, in a desire to have the kind of platform that you were describing, and so forth. And that, to me, is embarrassing. I think so. I mean, um, you know, I I don't want to say that, you know, I mean, you've got this situation where uh, a lot of uh, American leftists, I mean, they've, they've sort of signed on to, to being on, on outlets like RT. And um, from what I've studied, from what I've studied of it, and I don't watch it regularly, but I, I do end up looking at it closely when I'm doing research on various issues. Um, I mean, it, it seems to have a very similar propaganda function, although different in some ways, uh, to what the United States is doing, what U.S. media is doing in terms of nationalistic pressures, uh, pro-U.S. pressures, and in the case of RT in terms of of Russian propaganda, I would say I noticed that uh, when I was doing a lot of research on media coverage of of the war in Syria, um, you've basically got two different versions of propaganda within this this war. Where in the case of the U.S. media, you've got uh, very very sparse coverage of any sort of recognition that the United States is responsible for destabilizing Syria, killing civilians, uh, and in the case of RT, you see a lot of coverage of uh, the United States destabilizing Syria, but really not much of anything in terms of uh, the Russian government and what it's responsible for in cities like Aleppo and and elsewhere. So we pretty much know uh, what these news outlets are doing on a nationalistic level, too. Um, And I think what you were just talking about in terms of 
our key support for right-wing movements and the, the points that I'm making about nationalistic propaganda, I think those, both of those things really just sort of bring together a broader point, which is that uh, this is not uh, a workable outlet for building a, a real progressive democratic alternative sort of vision. I think we need outlets like Counterpunch and others to do that. Absolutely. And, and, and again, I think that that's a key point that you're making because ultimately, ultimately the function of the platform is to, uh, represent the interests that back it. I mean, they're not, they're not hiding that. They are quite open about the fact that RT is the Russian viewpoint on world affairs and so forth. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that they're kind of concealing what their objective is. My, my issue is that it has now uh, sort of emerged as a quote-unquote alternative that a lot of people on the left turn to in a sort of uncritical way. And that's part of the problem I have is as somebody who was on the outlet many, many times before I was blacklisted from there, uh, as somebody who has some experience with the how the production teams function there, how the editorial uh, staff works and so forth, I understand that, that what we're really talking about is exactly what you said. I mean, it's, it's Russia's corollary to a sophisticated soft power projection that the United States has been using for decades. The Russians are just now catching up to the idea that they have to have soft power and they have to project power using soft power appendages in the media. So in in essence, what we're now seeing is that uh, Russian media has essentially created its foil to U.S. corporate media. And that, of course, doesn't bode well for people who really want some kind of truth out of the uh, the news that they're watching. I think so. I think... Um... You know, like I said before, I think we really need to grow these sort of these alternative media. You're talking about a lot of potential for growth, and the question is how to do that. Um, I I've tried in my own personal life to uh, to be as active as possible in terms of promoting the things that I read and write at Counterpunch and at other websites. But ultimately, it's going to take every reader or as many as possible, and everyone who writes for that website really trying to spread the word as much as possible. And I know a lot of people do that, but we have to to do an even better job because, you know, there's no one in the the U.S. corporate media that's going to do the job for us. I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's right. And I, I, know, I don't want to focus too much about this issue because I think it's really only one small aspect of a much larger question, and that is a question of geopolitics, a question of global strategy, and all of those things that make up you know, international relations. So I think that ultimately that's something that needs to be sort of uh, understood on its own terms, but also not necessarily blown out of proportion, which is why I would never uh, chastise somebody for going on RT or for a hearing on, you know, uh, an Iranian media outlet or whatever media outlet it may be. I would never chastise somebody for that, but I would hope that they would understand exactly what the outlet's function is and how it is actually quite similar to the function of our corporate media in the West. I think so. I think that gets back to a broader point about the failure of critical education in the United States, too, that we have an education system that's very parochial and, you know, it's really good at training people to do tasks and it's not very good at getting people to look at the world in a empirical scientific critical way there's a lot of uh, professors and teachers in the united states that preach critical thinking and very little of it that's actually being done
Absolutely. So I want to, um, I guess we need to take a break. And uh, on the other side of the break, I want to talk about Trump and I want to talk about the uh, the movement, if we can call it that, uh, that really catapulted Trump into power. Maybe it's a demographic question. Maybe it's a broader social question. I want to explore that with Anthony DiMaggio. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Anthony DiMaggio. You got to follow Anthony's work. It's really top notch. He's an excellent uh, uh, writer. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch. Uh, he's a professor at Lehigh University. And pick up uh, his his most recent books, including Selling War, Selling Hope. It's an excellent read. Something that you will not uh, that you will not regret spending the time to uh, digest. So anyway, uh, Anthony, let me turn to uh, Trump and Trumpism, if I could call it that. Um, you and I have both kind of explored this issue. We've both written about it, and I'm, I'm kind of really happy to be able to talk to you about it. You recently published a piece, I guess this was about three weeks ago or so now. Uh, it, this was in Counterpunch entitled Election Con 2016, New Evidence Demolishes the Myth of Trump's Blue-Collar Populist. Uh, I think the headline tells quite a bit of the story, so why don't you kind of take it from there and, and explore a little bit some of the some of the issues that you were touching on in that article and what conclusions you came out of after having looked at uh, the data. Yeah, I think this is an important issue because it's so misunderstood. I mean, there's been this sort of universal drumbeat within the mass media and also with a lot of left media and elsewhere that uh, the rise of Trump represents a victory, or at least the rise of this grievance of the white working class, this revolt, this populistic uh, opposition to corporate globalization and free trade, uh, and the neoliberal era in general. And it's something that I think a lot of people have latched on to because they think it makes sense in, in that uh, certainly in the last 40 years there has been a rise of neoliberalism and it has meant a squeezing of the middle class and uh, the problem of outsourcing, um, the decline of well-paying jobs in the United States, and so on and so on. The problem is that you know we don't want to 
construct narratives in a vacuum independent of actual evidence. And what I've been finding, I've been trying to communicate through a variety of counterpunch pieces, um, is that more than anything else, what the Trump uprising, if you could call it that, uh, what it is, and it's really not a huge uprising, it's really, I would say, a sort of an anemic populism in the sense that it's really concentrated around a personality, not so much a mass uprising and protest. Uh, it, it seems to be, to a large extent, much more about white nationalism, sexism, um, Islamophobia. Uh, basically, if I had to sort of summarize it really simply, there's this idea that there's a narrative here that we want a return of the lost greatness that we once had. And basically you have to think along many dimensions back to the 1950s era America. This idea that you could get a great job out of high school without having to bury yourself in student loan debt. But it's more than just that. It's more than the economics of it. To an even greater extent, it's about this idea that there's a, a United States that's fundamentally changing on a social level and demographically. You have a large group of Americans here most Trump voters, I think you could say, who are angry about this change. They are yearning for the uh, the days where African Americans, quote, knew their place prior to the civil rights era, uh, and when Hispanics were not uh, trying to defend their rights in terms of discrimination and things like racial profiling, and before gays, uh, gay and lesbian individuals were fighting for their rights to come out of the closet and be treated equally, or transgendered individuals, too, uh, before we even talked about Muslims at all. Uh, all of these things are sort of come together in this this um, this narrative of lost greatness that they think that can be restored. And um, I think what we've seen with the Trump administration is that that's really uh, not on his agenda, especially, uh, you know, despite all the talk about draining the swamp, that he's really done as much as any other president, if not more, to further institutionalize corporate control of uh, the economy. Absolutely. Now, uh, I don't want to kind of, uh, you know, tread old uh, old territory or whatever but um i do think it's important to uh go back to the phrase that i used and i don't i'm sure i'm not the only one but i i came up with it independently of anybody else as far as i know but uh white identity politics i think is a term that is appropriate because really in my view that at least how i understand that term uh, really encapsulates precisely what you were just talking about anthony the, the, this feeling of loss that ultimately it's a loss but a loss of what? It's a loss of identity. Sure, it's a loss of wealth. Sure, it's a loss of, you know, relative uh, uh, wages, real wages. Sure, it's a loss of a lot of very material things. But at the larger, call it, you know, philosophical or dare I say metaphysical level, it's a loss of identity. It's a loss of the identity of the country that they once thought belonged to them. And the realization that it doesn't, that it no longer does. And so Trumpism is in many ways just kind of this sort of uh, manufactured political expression of white identity politics. I like that term. I think white identity politics captures it pretty well, and I think that's part of the uh, what makes people so queasy about it, critics of Trump, in the sense that when you hear catchphrases and slogans like Make America Great Again, I mean, that, is that what we're talking about? <laughs> Return of white you know, sort of male supremacy of the Pretty 1950s. Much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, and, and, and look at the corollary in Britain. The slogan for Brexit was take back control. I mean, it was it was literally a, a, almost an identical 
type of uh, of uh, sociological uh, phenomenon that brought Brexit, uh, you know, to fruition. And so, and similarly, I think you see some of that with uh, Marine Le Pen, and though the French example is sort of unique under its own conditions, but ultimately we are seeing sort of this global, or at least a, a trend within, you know, global North countries where uh, the, you know, white male sort of dominant class is feeling this sense of loss, feeling a loss of identity, a loss of control, and they'll do anything to get it back. I think so. And I think one thing that's worth pointing out here is that um, what it isn't is a lower class revolt. Exactly. Um, I've seen very little evidence uh, of that in terms of people who are of a, a lower income uh, or economically disadvantaged, really being at the forefront of, of supporting Trump. I could give you just one example, and I'm not sure anyone's actually talked about this data yet, but it is worth bringing up. Uh, the, the, the Pew Research Center, during the, the primary season, they were asking Americans what they thought about Donald Trump and other candidates. And one thing that you saw that was really interesting was that in one of their surveys, they asked what class people would say that they belong to. So this is like, you know, straight out of the horse's mouth. This yeah. is the individual saying what class they identify with. What you saw was in, in the spring of 2016, according to this Pew data, only 29% of people who said they were lower or lower middle class uh, said they were pro-Trump. 59% said uh, that they were against him. So you had like a two-to-one uh, running against Trump there. Now, I don't know that you could say that Donald Trump was hugely popular during the primary across any particular class from the data I was looking at, but certainly support was much higher uh, the higher up the income scale you went. So, for example, you saw 42% of people who said they were upper class, so that they were in favor of Donald Trump. Um, so uh, at the very least here, when you're looking at this data, I mean, it's pretty clear when you look at uh, people's self-designated class status or if you're looking at their level of income or whether someone says they're unemployed or not, uh, or looking at other studies in terms of looking at areas of the country that have been the most harmed by outsourcing of jobs. None of these things are correlated in, in the polls with support or greater support for Donald Trump. Uh, I think it's convenient for a lot of uh, liberal Americans and liberal intellectuals to sort of spin this narrative that you've got these ignorant blue-collar proles out there who need to be smacked back into line by the benevolent, you know, intellect of the Democratic Party. And it's a very classist, um, elitist narrative, and it happens to be wrong yep. empirically. And also, and also, it must be said, some very opportunistic, uh, self-proclaimed leftists who immediately jumped on the working class uprising narrative to chastise everybody on the left who wasn't willing to sort of give a pass to all of the racism, who wasn't willing to kind of accept this uh, this this nascent movement as it evolved. I saw a number of people on the left, some who I even thought had decent politics for quite a while, who were literally arguing that anybody speaking bad about Trump's support base or really critically analyzing Trump's support base was nothing but shilling for Hillary Clinton. That's how far we have fallen in our political discourse on the left, where you literally have people who will uh, see a proto-fascist, far right-wing political campaign and champion it. I think so. I mean, I saw a lot of that too. I got a lot of plenty of angry uh, emails uh, from from my readers uh, along those lines. And uh, you know, it becomes very easy when a narrative gets created 
whether it's in the mass media or even in alternative media, for people to feel sort of kowtowed or become submissive and to challenge it, you you risk uh, really having a lot of that rage being brought down on you because people do have, uh, on the left and elsewhere, legitimate grievances. And I think people want to look at uh, this, the rise of Trump and say that this is what it is, that it's concern about you know, free trade and corporate globalization and the squeezing of the middle class. But, you know, what we really see when we look at these polls is not that that's not the case, that uh, Trump supporters in particular, they don't seem particularly concerned with uh, things like people struggling to pay for health care or how to improve an underfunded education system or about, um, you know, the effects of free trade and, and so on and so on, that it really is when you talk about white identity politics, that's the primary driver. Yeah, and and one of the things that I I'd, I'd written about, and I think your piece uh, sort of alluded to it, although you, you took a slightly different approach, uh, has to do with this. Um, what what I guess sociologists, or you'll have to correct me if that's if that's not true, but uh, sociologists or people who study uh, demographics and things like that call entitativity, the creation of an of a cohesive whole, the idea that you're part of a cohesive whole, a singular uh, social unit. Uh, you know, there's an entitativity among Black Americans or among uh, you know Asian Americans or among Catholics or whatever it might be. But tr- but in the United States. There was never such a thing as, you know, quote unquote, white America. There were, you know, the Catholics or the, you know, Methodists, evangelicals or, you know, whatever you might want to say, any number of subgroups. But white America was never at least traditionally seen by white Americans as a cohesive unit, a whole, a, a, a cultural group that they could be a part of. And I think that Donald Trump and the rise of Trump and the rise of Make America Great Again and all of this, this kind of opens the floodgates for the, the, the manufacturing of a, of a fake but yet nonetheless powerful feeling of entitativity or cohesiveness within white America so that my uh, my boss in New York City identifies with a poor person in rural Georgia, with a, you know, with a, a white farmer in Northern California or with whomever, that there is a shared experience and that shared experience that they can commiserate over is loss. It is the feeling of loss. It is the feeling of a lack of greatness. That's what's happened, and I don't think we should ignore that. I think it's a great point. I think what we're really talking about is the fragmenting of the American public. And, um, you know, I would say that uh, as, a, as a progressive academic, you know, a lot of my work draws on the work of uh, the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci. And you're really talking about hegemonic powers here yep. to create this sort of false consciousness and this really what amounts to a fake narrative. I mean, the history of of class conflict is quite defined throughout the, the 20th century in the United States. And this idea that all white people can just be joined together, I mean, it is a blatant contradiction of our actual history. And even if you look today at who were the people who were supporting Trump, it wasn't uh, white people across the board. Uh, it was one you know, particular group, white non, uh, non-college graduates. And in that case, even there, only two-thirds, well, but two-thirds of them went pro-Trump, so there's even division there. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, these are very simplistic narratives, which are easy to digest. But when you have these simplistic narratives, it makes it that much easier to, to propagandize. In this case, when we're talking about the idea of a false 
you know, national white identity. Indeed. Now, the question of fascism, I think, looms large here, and I think that a lot of people have been very reticent to use the word, uh, maybe because they feel like it's been watered down through overusage, or maybe they feel that they can't justify using the word for Trump or what have you, but I make no bones about it. I think that I think that it's absolutely the appropriate word. I don't think that Trump is Hitler necessarily, obviously, but I do think that the, the, the core, uh, you know, principles or core tenets of fascism, uh, as I view it at least, are certainly present uh, when you talk about what we were just alluding to, right? The, the, the attempt to convince people that class divisions can be erased in favor of a unified, cohesive whole, in this case, of course, white America, right? That the rich white American and the poor white American have more in common than the poor white American and the poor black American or, or his Hispanic uh, American or what have you, you know, that this idea that you can sort of erase these class contradictions and supersede them with a, a, a racial, a cultural or a demographic unity. I think that is one of the hallmarks of fascism. Certainly it was in Italy under Mussolini and later in Germany under Hitler. I think that's an important point to bring up. And I don't think we should shy away from that. I think we should also bring up the merger, the true one. 100% merger of corporate America, of capitalist elites with the U.S. government. Now, this is something, of course, that we've seen over a number of decades and has held true throughout every administration, but it's now taken to an to a uh, exponentially greater degree under Trump. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, Anthony, with this sort of transparently, kind of nakedly savage policies that, that that Trump is employing and the methods that he's using. So, give me your take on the use of the word fascism to do, or maybe proto-fascism or fascism light or whatever people are comfortable with in describing Trump and what we're seeing between the takeover of the government by corporate America, the racing of class lines and any number of other examples. How do you read this question of fascism and Trump? Well, I've gone back and forth because I know that depending on the intellectuals you talk to, uh, I know Henry Giroux, who's a great intellectual, isn't shy about using the word fascism. And I know some other intellectuals, which I have great respect for, like Noam Chomsky, have been sort of reluctant. Um, I, my first point would be, if the discussion is whether Donald Trump is an authoritarian or in American politics we're moving in general in an authoritarian direction versus a fascist direction, that we're really all in the same ballpark, um, whether you want to call it authoritarian or, or fascist. For a long time I've been saying either quasi or proto-fascistic uh, because I think, you know, obviously we're not seeing the kind of policies that you would see under um, Hitler and Nazi Germany, the idea of, um, you know, a Holocaust um, or that kind of level of, of authoritarianism. But, I mean, there are definitely these elements. They're there. And I think it would be naive to deny that. I think particularly of this idea of demonizing minorities, the idea of Muslims as a fifth column threat, despite the complete lack of evidence that uh, Muslim Americans are more apt or likely to uh, engage in terrorism or support it than the non-Muslim Americans. I think this idea of the fusion of business and state power is a big part of it, as as you said. This idea of this belligerent nationalism, which you see in slogans like Make America Great Again, and this idea that uh, it's us against the other. This is another one of these ridiculous binaries that the, the Trump administration has really risen to power on. So I think it's I think it's an appropriate term. I think, you know, part of the concern here is that... Um, that we might be talking about a slow slide into 
a fascistic state. Uh, that's always a concern that, that you could be talking about a terrorist attack that's then followed by a rapid consolidation of military national security powers even beyond what we've already seen. Um, and this is one of those things that I talk to my students a lot about it. We, we read books like It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. And um, while a lot of people say, well, a lot of this is allegorical, uh, a lot of students say, well, maybe this is very real, too, that um, people think it can happen here, and then it becomes more likely to happen, and that it could happen gradually or even very quickly. Um, so I think it would be foolish to to dismiss that. The, this, I, uh, this explanation. Yeah, and I think it's also I, I think it's also irresponsible because it removes what we're witnessing from a real historical context and from its uh, historical trajectory that has brought us to this point. I mean, there is a wealth of literature about the various uh, uh, undercurrents of white nationalism, of uh, white supremacism, of fascism uh, in the United States and in the uniquely American context that, uh, to a large extent, have consolidated around Trump and are only just now really emerging into the light of day. I mean, these are a lot of these are social forces of reaction that to a large extent were forcibly suppressed uh, in the post-civil rights era. And uh, now they are really, again, kind of coming to the surface and, and, and coming out of the woodwork. And it's not something that's very easily uh, put back into the bottle, as it were. And I think that people are severely underplaying the threat of, uh, of what we're witnessing because because they're focused on Trump as an individual. As I've said uh, for now, like two years, Trump as an individual will come and he will go. But the pe the movement that congealed around Trump will not be going anywhere anytime soon. And until we realize that and realize what that what that uh, cohesive unit around Trump is and how it was formed and how it was manipulated and shaped and molded, until we start really asking those questions without fear of what the answers might be or of how it might sound, until we do that, we're going to be spinning our wheels. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think... Um... The thing that I've said in, in a number of my pieces is that you can't really fight something, in this case, the white identity or white nationalistic politics, until you understand that it exists. So as long as we're sitting here and saying, well, this is just a white working class and it's not about race and it's not about uh, sexism, it's not about uh, xenophobia. As long as we keep burying our heads in the sand on, on these issues, you're not going to make any headway on it. I don't think that's – if you look back at the history of um, progressive movements, particularly the civil rights movement, uh, you're not going to get anywhere, and people didn't get anywhere until they recognized that there was a problem. That was sort of the first step of, of making headway and promoting equal rights. You had to convince people in the United States, particularly the American North, who were unfamiliar with um, – the savage repression that took place in many American southern states, that there's an actual problem going on and they had to see it. So I don't think that you can make progress on these things until, until you recognize them. How do you fight something you don't recognize exists? Right. And and also, you know, and here's another pet peeve for me in talking about this issue. You get a lot of sanctimonious shit from people on the left who will tell you, well, you know, it's 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 foolish to just write off all the people supporting Trump as as fascists and racists. A lot of them are decent people who get caught up in in these things. And I say, yes, absolutely. That's 100 percent true. But do you think that every German who got caught up in Nazism was bad? 
Do you think that every Italian who supported Mussolini was was a horrible person? A lot of people are susceptible to these types of things for a lot of uh, sometimes simple, sometimes complex socioeconomic reasons. That's absolutely true. Uh, it requires education. That's absolutely true. But what it doesn't what, what what doesn't help the situation is in papering over the reality of where those people are, what they're vocalizing. I'll give you one example. Okay, I'm driving to the train station this morning to catch my train uh, into work, as I always do. I'm stuck behind a truck. The truck has uh, an NRA sticker, a Don't Tread on Me flag sticker, two Alex Jones InfoWars stickers, and like a dozen other far right-wing, you know, reactionary-type slogans that were, uh, you know, on the bumper and, and elsewhere on the car. Now, what do you think I would say about this person as I'm driving behind him at 5.30 in the morning? Well, obviously, I can tell you a lot about this person's politics, but I could also tell you where his politics came from, how it was shaped and then kind of implanted into his mind through various uh, outlets and so forth. We have to understand the evolution of these trends, these political ideological trends, if we're going to combat them. And I think it's, I think it's very, very foolish to say, well, what you really need to do is you need to have an understanding approach. You need to tell them that it's okay. You need to find common ground. You need to work with them. You need to ally with them. That's the red-brown fascist alliance bullshit that I reject 100%. And anybody peddling it should be either ashamed of themselves or should be, I, I think, uh, well, quite frankly, called out. I appreciate your vigilance on, on the matter. I've been saying the same thing for a long time. I think um, you don't get to the point where you stigmatize racist, sexist, xenophobic uh, opinions uh, without calling people out and without shaming those things. Um, so, you know, and, and it, it does work. It, uh, maybe people don't realize that in the short term, but if you look, I could give you an example, the success of um, the gay and lesbian rights movement. You know, what we've seen in the last really 20 years is that uh, due to gay rights activists and the mainstreaming of of gay and lesbian individuals and them fighting for their rights against discrimination it has now become taboo uh, to openly discriminate against individuals, whether it's in a business or uh, in any other setting. And what we have seen, if you look closely at the national polling data, is that across all different types of generations, going back to the silent generation, the baby boomers, uh, Generation X and the millennials, that there's been a growing support for gay marriage and gay rights as equal rights across all of these groups. You don't get to that without uh, some harsh treatment of of these uh, these views, which in in my view are toxic. Um, I think what we're really talking about is that people have some legitimate concerns underlying their their anger, but they get totally misdirected and misplaced. Yes. And you did see this with. Um, the exit polls with Donald Trump, the, the CBS New York Times exit poll showed that uh, much more than Hillary Clinton voters, Trump voters had said that their financial situation had gotten much worse in recent years uh, than the Clinton voters. So there was, and I think, you know, that's an interesting point because you can sort of combine that with this, these other findings that these people tend to be more sort of upper, upper middle class in their incomes. So what you're really talking about is a group of Americans who were, uh, relatively privileged for a long time, and they got hit pretty hard in the 2008 economic crash, whether it was through losing a 401k uh, in terms of the value of that or uh, their house value collapsing, and these people are angry, uh, often for good reason, but uh, what ends up happening is it gets so misdirected, they are looking end up looking for a scapegoat. That's, right. and that's the part where we have to really be vigilant about challenging that, that the, the cause of this is a neoliberal cause, not 
uh, black people or Hispanic Americans or Muslims. And that's been the narrative that Trump is pushing. Right. And 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 what I think, um, you know, I agree 100 percent. I guess another way of saying it, uh, one of the one of the things that I've been putting forward is the idea that there are economic uh, issues that underlie a lot of the support for Trump among working class people in particular. There's no doubt about that. But it's not the economic issues. Rather, it's how that angst about economic issues is actually expressed politically and socially and culturally. It's the expression of those economic, uh, of that economic decline. That's what we're really talking about. That's what we're concerned with here. If it was really about NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership and all of those things, Trump would be guillotined by now because Trump was really, you know, obviously selling a pack of lies about all of that. Okay. But that's not really what this was about. It wasn't about the economic issues themselves. It was about the rage and that rage had a political, social and cultural expression and Trump galvanized that expression and it's up to the next fascist, the really slick, smooth operating one who we don't know his name yet, who will come and take that mantle 5, 10, 15 years from now, that's what keeps me up at night. I think so. I think it's the true believer fascist, not the used car salesman one. Right. Um, you know, I think uh, that one of the problems we run into on what's called the left in the United States or what's left of it is there's oftentimes this inclination towards a sort of crass Marxism. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of people reading Marx and this idea that economics determines how people look at the world and also this idea of studying uh, how corporate media use hegemonic pressures to manipulate people. And uh, you know, all these, these Marxist ideas are, are interesting and useful, but I think sometimes it can get taken too far when I say crass Marxism, this idea that economics is the only thing that matters. And it seems like from our discussion here, you know, both of us recognize that that's far from the case. Well, I think that I think that material forces certainly shape reality, but I think that the expression of those forces, the the, the political expression in particular, is not always clear cut, and it's not always the same in each in each uh, you know national context or each historical context. I think the United States has very unique historical conditions and contemporary conditions that make a political expression of that kind of angst very different here than it is, say, in France, where despite you know. A loss of na- of income and you know declining wages and 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 all of those things. Le Pen was trounced by the centrist neoliberal Macron, and I think that indicates something somewhat unique about French culture as it uh, you know as against the U.S. or the U.K. I think that we have to have a a nuanced approach to understanding these things, going beyond just well, it was about NAFTA and the TPP and neoliberalism. This was a rejection of neoliberalism. It was an ugly one, but a rejection nonetheless, and that's what we need to talk about. No, that's the kind of simplistic and reductionistic analysis that it has led us to exactly this point of impotence on the left. That makes sense to me. I would I would add one thing. I would say that, um, you know, when, as these narratives are getting created, one thing that's sort of missing, too, and especially when you talk about this idea of a white working class revolt, there is uh, some way to sort of recover this idea of a working class revolt if we're talking about demobilization. Uh, not so much that people were willing to go out and, and vote for Trump in large numbers, but what the 2016 election showed is that 
Um, if we're talking about what's going on in U.S. culture, we've seen the rapid rise of, uh, of demobilization that between 2012 and 2016, uh, the Democratic Party lost three and a half times as many working class voters as the Republican Party gained between 2012 and 2016 in the, in the presidential election. So this is a huge part of this. You know, people talk about U.S. culture and this idea of, um, you know, a populist uprising, but a huge uh, thing that we need to recognize is apathy and demobilization as a part of American culture that, that really creates a sort of vacuum where people like Donald Trump can rise because uh, we know that for a lot of more affluent Americans and, and more Republican-oriented voters that they're not going to stop turning out to vote. So when other people demobilize, uh, you have a situation where people on the right get even, even more power, even if they're not growing in number. That's a great point, and I would add to that also one of the things that often is is not discussed is the fact that when we use the term working class, many of us have a very biased and, and, and skewed perspective where we say the words working class and we think white worker, but the working class is mostly non-white. I mean that's the that's the demographic reality in the United States and so when we talk about quote unquote working class support for Trump we're talking about a segment of the working class there is not necessarily any such thing as a white working class there is merely the working class which has white workers not uh, black workers hispanic workers and so forth but it is the change the, the changing of the very nature of the working class that is a problem for the trumpist uh, you know working class segment as it were so when they talk about the working class backlash in favor of Trump, that in and of itself, I would say, is an expression of a sort of a white supremacist outlook within our mass media. I was going to say those exact words, actually. I think that's what we're really talking about, this idea of a hegemonic narrative where, um, you know, you're privileging whiteness over over the majority of, of working class individuals who, who aren't uh, in this changing America. So and this is part of the the narrative that we really have to start uh, questioning. Yeah, it's as if it's as if you know the decline of the the decline of the white working class is a tragedy and a travesty of historical proportions. But the continued oppression of workers who have black skin and brown skin, well, that's just the status quo. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. So that leads us to the final point. What does this mean for the future of the left? I think that this is ultimately the overriding question here because Trump is going to ultimately be discredited, right? Trump is going to collapse under the weight of his own bullshit. Trump administration will be seen, I think, similar to like the Nixon administration or whatever. But what are we going to do about the rise of a global far right or a global fascist upsurge? This is something that I've yet to hear anybody adequately answer, and I think that this is part of the conversation for the coming years. I think so. I don't think that any one person is going to be able to provide a fully satisfying answer across the board. I mean, I think we've seen the, the rise of encouraging signs with the rise of the World Social Forum and the anti-corporate globalization movement and the, the movement of scientists across borders to challenge uh, and bring attention to climate change. But we really are, as you said, nowhere near where we need to be. Um, and I think in the case of the United States, um, what we need, in addition to better education, any more cosmopolitan education where people are taught to actually care what's happening in the rest of the world, which oftentimes doesn't happen, uh, we need to not only build, rebuild higher education and education in general, but American unions. I think that a lot of the scapegoating of, of minorities and, and foreigners, as the Trump administration would call them, uh, goes away if, if um, you know, you have a solid middle class and economic prosperity. Um, and, and again, it, that relates to 
sort of the more subtle points I was making earlier about the fact that people are angry about their economic losses, and I think a lot of people on the American right, uh, they have some sort of general anger about, and they know the economy's not doing well, they're very susceptible to this sort of scapegoating. Uh, so, you know, if you can rebuild the American left in terms of unions, and, and higher education, I think that we can start to sort of deal with some of these issues. And the real problem in higher education, I guess to put it simply, is um, the professionalization of it. You've seen a real shift, and I'm, I can speak about this authoritatively, someone who's been around higher ed for the last two decades, toward, um, when I say professionalization, this idea that, that academics are here to do research and not to do public outreach. And that's really sort of the death of intellectualism in the United States, that that the people who are in the best position to challenge the misinformation and the propaganda aren't doing it. And then you start to get this vacuum where the used car salesmen and cons of the world like Donald Trump can step in and thumb their noses at any sort of evidence-based reasoning or scientific reasoning. We'll leave it there. Um, Anthony DiMaggio, professor of political science at Lehigh University, regular contributor to Counterpunch. Get his book, Selling War, Selling Hope, Presidential Rhetoric, the News Media, and U.S. Foreign Policy Since 9-11. A great read, definitely worth your time and worth a few bucks to buy a copy. Anthony, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in, and I'll talk to you again next week.